Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. It was the viral must-watch during pandemic lockdown. My name's Joe Exotic and this is Sarge. Tiger King, as salacious as it was scandalous. One teenager admits to taking part in a gruesome murder, landing him in jail for the rest of his life. It's the linchpin in Brandon Dassey's controversial case. Serial was a phenomenon, a phenomenon that was downloaded 60 million times. Now, a true crime comedy show may sound a little strange, a whole lot of strange, but fans of my favorite murder say there's something strange about it. It's so much- And hosts of the popular podcast, Wine and Crime. 56-year-old Bobby Bluer was lying face down on the floor of the bus, bleeding. Where they playfully chat about crime over Cabernet and Chardonnay. I thought my only way out was to kill myself. I didn't know what else to do. I went into complete shock. I disassociated. They see it as entertainment. They don't see us as real people. The online sleuths, you know, I've got a very complicated history with that group. My stories have gotten people freed from prison. It's helped catch killers. There is no standards and protocols for how to handle any of that. And so you end up just chewing on the same nonsense until you're deep in a twisted funhouse of mirrors. Somebody asked, is it disrespectful if I wear something that has blood spatter on it? It sells newspapers, it sells magazines, it gets viewership. And that's what it's all about. It's money, money, money. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Blood Money, a Labyrinth's miniseries. True crime seems to be everywhere these days. It's on social media, in your podcast feed, and on all your favorite streaming services. Talking to Brian McGinn and Nikki Egan gave us insight into the perspective of media creators. But what about the consumers? We're not true crime fans ourselves, so we're coming at this more like anthropologists studying a foreign culture. What does it mean to be invested in something tragic? To be a fan of a missing persons case or an unsolved murder? And how does that fandom affect the people at the center of these tragedies? True crime conventions seemed like a natural place to start. What are these conventions really like? Are they sensationalist cash grabs that profit off of victims and their families? Are they a supportive environment where people can bring attention to their stories and maybe even get their cases solved? Are they full of contradictions? I've attended as just a person advocating for my sister. I've attended as a speaker. I have attended as a podcast that's been invited. I have attended virtually and hosted virtually on there. So I think I've seen all of these experiences. Remember Sarah Turney? We talked to her in part two of our miniseries. She's the host of the Voices for Justice podcast, where she cultivated a massive following to help solve the murder of her sister, Alyssa eventually leading to the arrest of her own father. So attending these types of events is like a double-edged sword. There are certainly people that are there for the same reasons I am, because they care and they want to advocate and they want to help. But then there are also people who are there for the entertainment aspect of it. They want to go meet Nancy Grace. They want to see these people they see on TV in real life. They want to wear T-shirts with serial killers all over it and walk around like it's a horror convention or a murder convention, really. So it's bittersweet. It's extremely hard as a family member attending these. And I've never gone to one of these without feeling emotionally tapped after, extremely exhausted. But that being said, it is a nice place to be able to meet my listeners and the people that supported me. And I think that's a huge reason why I've gone. But in general, these conferences bring up a lot of mixed feelings because you you see the people that care and you meet them and you hug them and you talk to them. And then you see the people who clearly don't. It's confusing, you know, especially for somebody like me as a family member. It's, it's hard. For me, when you go into a convention where they're featuring families, victims, survivors, wrongfully accused, everything in between, 
I think it's extremely disrespectful to go in there just assuming you're going to have a good time and that it's a party. But not everybody feels that way, and they are very vocal that they do not feel that way. I know how Sarah feels. A few years ago, we attended the Death Becomes Us True Crime Festival, where I interviewed Lorena Bobbitt. Like at CrimeCon, there were people trying to raise awareness about unsolved cases, sharing their personal stories of trauma and loss. But there were also those who had the same kind of whimsical attitude you'd expect at Comic-Con. The question of how people should behave at these conventions is hotly debated online. I do monitor a lot of these sites because I want to get a feel for the pulse of the community. In one of these discussion groups, somebody asked, is it disrespectful if I wear something that has blood spatter on it? You know, the big debate. And so I responded and said, well, there will be families there. There will be victims, survivors, all of those. So I would say that you are likely to offend someone. And, uh, you know, I get called self-righteous. Who do I think I am? You know, right to free speech. And to that, I say, you know, yes, it's true. You can you can wear and say and do basically whatever you want within the law. But if I walk into a church wearing a shirt that says God isn't real, I'm a jerk. You know what I mean? And that's the end of it. I know I'm offending people. Just be honest. Don't sit there and fight with me about whether or not it's offensive because it clearly is, you know, to some people. So it's like, just own up to it and say, hey, I'm going to walk into this convention with my serial killer dress on and I don't care who I offend. I'm here to party. And nobody's willing to admit that. Hmm. That's what's hard is they try to convince us that we're crazy, that we're self-righteous, that we have no right to censor other people. And it's like, that's not what we're trying to do. We're just saying, hey, you asked the question, we're offended and we're telling you. It's a complicated relationship for me. The true crime world in general seems to have the very lighthearted entertainment side to it and the serious advocacy side to it and a bunch of things that are hybrids in the middle. Well, and then there's, I'm going to add another side to it to make it a nice little triangle, this sort of deep, dark, almost vicious, hmm. going after people side of it. There's also that side. And I wonder, like, in the convention world in particular, what are the models? There's Comic-Con, you know, there's all these other, you know, merch booths and panels and keynote speakers. All that stuff seems to be very much a heavy influence on how you design an event like that. I also wonder, from your experience, if certain players give a sort of inertia to shaping what those events are like. I know that like one of the most popular podcasts in the true crime space is like My Favorite Murder, and the name alone tells you how serious <laughs> you know they are, right? And if a people are showing up to this space for that content, are they surprised to find the advocacy type or the serious content? Does the audience overlap between those kinds of things? So, yes, I do think that the audience overlaps. I think that even the most sensational creators have people that care in their audience. So, I mean, even people who love Nancy Grace and her top mom and all her nicknames and all the sensationalism, I think that she does have members of her audience that care very much about these cases. But with that being said, you build these events based off your keynote speakers. That's going to gauge where your audience comes from. So if you pick these figures in true crime that are inherently sensational, then yeah, you're mostly going to get that crowd. And I think that that's why there is such a big mix at a lot of these events, because if they're smart, they pick who's popular, right? If they're just going off of a business model and selling the most amount of tickets possible, they're not really gauging the ethics of your content. They're gauging your download numbers and how many tickets you can sell for them. Hmm. Are there any particularly positive and particularly negative memories you have from being at CrimeCon or, or various crime conventions? Yeah, I've done several panels. I've been a speaker at two events now. And one of the positives is walking into a room full of thousands of people who want to hear you speak and who care about you talking about ethics and true crime. That gives me a lot of hope. On the flip side of that, I think what's discouraging is wondering whether or not the event organizers care about us. Just to be totally honest, I'm not always sure. I'm not sure if I'm being used as somewhat of an ethics card for these types of events. Particularly with this last year, I brought up several concerns and I don't feel heard. 
And to be honest, I'm not sure if I'll go back. So there's been some really negative experiences. I mean, I'm walking into the event and someone shouts, it's Sarah Turney and screams and grabs me and starts petting my head. And I'm looking at security like, hey, like, and nobody does anything. I don't always feel safe. And it's hard. I do have to say, I actually come from a background of planning events. You know, I've done large events, you know, larger than many of these true crime conventions. And the security measures, or lack thereof, were extremely concerning. It just felt like, why do I have a hair and makeup person, but there's not security patrolling this area, you know, of concern of ours? I would love to see a trauma specialist there, even just some type of like decompression room mm. where I can go sit and not be surrounded by a lot of people would be great. So yeah, there, there's a lot of negatives and a lot of positives. So it's this whole ball of emotions, to be honest. That has always been my experience of true crime. And it's a hard ball of emotions to swallow. The question for us is, does it have to be that way? Can you salvage what's positive about true crime while stripping away the negative? Or are the negatives for people like me the very things that draw a massive audience? We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? My name is Henry, and I've been a supporter of the Labyrinths podcast for some time. I can totally relate to the concept of feeling lost, and I think the stories have helped me tremendously getting through these last couple of years, and I think they would help others as well. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. True crime conventions are, in some sense, a natural result of true crime fandom. The obsession of fans almost demands an outlet like this. But the actual shape and design of these experiences is as much a result of the individual personalities that decide to host such events. My name is Jed Tisdale, and in a former life, I was the creator and director of a true crime festival called Death Becomes Us that became... Uh, null and void due to the pandemic. And that's okay. That's okay. You know, you're allowed to evolve. I'd, I'd like to think I just evolved past it. We attended Death Becomes Us back in 2019. An event which, like many in the true crime world, had its fair share of controversy. How did you stumble into being the creator of a true crime convention? I was working at a media company that had already produced large events. We were having a meeting one day, and I don't want to be that annoying person that says, it just came to me. But it did just, it just kind of floated down into my brain from the ether. Just the words true crime festival. I was already a consumer of the genre. And I just thought it's one of those things that rarely has a place where people can gather to speak about it. They obviously talk about it online ad nauseum. But uh, I also wanted to try to create events that I would be interested in that I wasn't seeing. Yeah. Were you aware going into creating Death Becomes Us that there were other festivals and conventions? I patted myself on the back. I was like, no one's doing this. I, I didn't know about CrimeCon. I used to watch Investigation Discovery. I don't think I ever watched Oxygen. I now very openly shit on both of those places. Sometimes they'll hit something out of the old ballpark with an occasionally good documentary. But most of the time, I'm gently horrified by them. So I did not know about CrimeCon, which is the only large-scale true crime event I know of in the United States. Mm -hmm. And then after I became aware of it, I actually attended one and I was like, oh, this is this is not for me. Do you want to tell me about what your experience was like at CrimeCon? So to continue on with my trajectory of being a bit of a snob, a cool snob, I'm a cool girl. The place where I worked was considered a hip place. I do hate that word, but we were described as such. So we put our event in a music venue. So I was always very clear. I was like, it's not a convention, it's a festival. Like, who am I? Stop it. <laughs> it's embarrassing now, but sure, I said it. I said it a lot. But Crime 
Con is a convention and that is okay. But it, it always felt very sterile to me. It felt sterile to me, even in New Orleans. How are you going to fuck up New Orleans? How are you going to go to one of the greatest cities in the world and have everything be so beige hmm. and panel-wise so white? Hmm. But first impressions were that that is very expensive. Looks like the cheapest pass is $249 and you can go up to $1,500. Wow. Man, that's crazy. Because how many people are attending these events? I don't know, but it seems to be an almost full hotel takeover. It seems like every convention space within these hotels is occupied by CrimeCon. They have a lot of events happening simultaneously, something that I made sure we didn't have a lot of events. It was three days. We had eight events and we didn't want them to overlap in case you wanted to go to every event. CrimeCon doesn't do that, which is why when I look at something like a $1,500 ticket, uh, you're not really getting access to all the events because things are happening at the same time. So they have panels. They have very upsetting people every year, like Nancy Grace, who is a full-on, I don't like to use this word, I won't use it lightly, monster. <laughs> I don't care. I think she's not great. And then because CrimeCon is sponsored by Oxygen, obviously it's also used as a funnel for Oxygen talent. So you're going to get a lot of Oxygen talent. You're going to get a lot of great people like Keith Morrison and that silky voice of his lulling you to sleep while he's talking about death. What I find to be a little gross about CrimeCon is I've been told they don't pay their talent. Maybe they're paying some of their upper echelon talent, but for sure what you're being told, and this is a very like stand-up comedy way of approaching things, is you're going to get paid in like exposure. <laughs> mm-hmm. And when you're talking about families who are desperately trying to get people to hear about their family's cases, seems a little bit like... Huh. Yeah. Of all people to exploit with the exposure line, that goes a bit far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am someone who believes that people should be paid for their work and their time. I've been told by some talent they weren't paid. Maybe I'm incorrect. And there are things that they've done that I've lightly touched on at Death Becomes Us, which some people might find offensive. I remember seeing people able to take photos against like a chalk outline. Sure. That stuff doesn't bother me. I did some questionable things that Death Becomes Us. We definitely had an evening where people could get their nails done and it was blood spatter pattern. Was that okay? <laughs> was, I don't know what that was okay. So that's what Crime Con is. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know. I, I mean, like, what can I say about it that I can't say about my own festival? I, for me, things that offend me the most are less some of the panels, which I was bored by them and more so how they run their events and how it felt more. Like they were taking advantage of the people attending and then possibly anyone involved in any of the podcasts or panels in terms of victims. Got it. How would you describe your own festival? You know, I was beholden to a company. There were a lot of decisions I would have made if I wasn't being pressured by somebody to, of course, make money. My goal was to put people together who you didn't normally get to see together. Yes, Mm. sometimes I was simply bringing a podcast in. But I wanted to try to put two things together that you might not normally see, which is why in New York we did Tinder Live and I was like, you're never going to get to see Amanda Nog swiping through Tinder on a stage. That's a great time. Like, and I'm still going to frame it as a true crime show because these people, sadly, whether they want to be or not, are part of that genre. Not a lot of people were confused, but I do think if you're coming for a straightforward true crime event that is going to look like Investigation Discovery or Oxygen, my festival wasn't for you. I think this was more along the lines of there's going to be an informative shows, but then there's also going to be fun shows, which I know some people think is illegal in the genre, but I disagree because that's why gallows humor exists. So totally, that's that. I do miss it, but I don't miss the stress. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot to put together. Mm-hmm. I have no idea how you managed to do it, especially since it definitely felt like you were doing a lot of it on your own. <laughs> I just loved it so much. What did you love about it? Well, I'm also, I used to do stand up. So I would put myself on the stage before every show like a megalomaniac, didn't care. So I'd like to think that I had a little bit of an entertainer's soul. And I wanted to just create shows that I knew people would find entertaining. And I liked the people that came to the show. I liked you immediately. I liked Damien immediately. The people that I already knew, of course, I liked, like the people from last podcast on the left. And I really wanted to bring people who hopefully weren't terrible people who are hopefully not in the genre for the quote unquote wrong reasons. Hmm. 
because there's a lot of that out there, unfortunately. Yeah. Talk to me about that. What would you say people who are in the genre for the right reasons and who are in the genre for the wrong reasons? Well, I think that it's perfectly okay to have, I call it true crimedy, true crime comedy. I know I keep going back to the last podcast, but they are my favorite podcast that approaches this genre with comedy and they're great at it. They do well-researched podcasts. They're not not victims advocates because they focus on always punching up, never punching down, but they're not, you don't feel like this is a savior complex, which I get the sense of in a lot of these people that they would really like to somehow solve something. And I'm not entirely sure they want to solve it because they care about what happened or because they want the glory that can now come with true crime. We see it now. I think people are coming to this genre now with an intent to become famous more so than an intent to do any good work. And that's okay if that's what you say. Last podcast on life, I don't think they wanted to be famous, but they never wanted to solve crimes. They simply talk about things that have happened and they do it with a great sense of comedy and they help you to laugh about awful, awful things. Have you ever had any encounters either at your own festival or at CrimeCon when you went to visit that either exemplify the good that these kinds of things are doing or the bad that these things are kind of doing. Absolutely. And I'm not blowing smoke up your ass right now when I say that your conversation with Lorena Bobbitt at my last festival was incredible. I mean, people were people were crying. And I'm not saying like, that's a great thing. We want them to cry. But there was an emotional connection to a conversation that you had with a woman who was obviously maligned in the media and joked about. Your old podcast, people can go listen to it. It's a thing of beauty. I felt so lucky that it happened at my festival. It wasn't me. It was your work. I did nothing. I did nothing Well, you definitely connected us. So let's give you credit where credit is due. (laughs) That sliver of credit, sure. But I felt so lucky to have been there to see this conversation between two people who were treated unfairly by the media, treated unfairly, then eventually still to this day by social media, crazy but true, Lorena Bobbitt jokes are still out there. It's wild. (laughs) To each new generation, a Lorena Bobbitt joke is born. That I felt, at least in my own event, was one of the better, if not the best shows. And many people afterwards contacted us to let us know. They were very moved by it. So for CrimeCon, I'm not going to be like just anti-CrimeCon the whole time. I'm, I know that they probably do some good shows. I know that separate from CrimeCon, Oxygen will have these events. I know Selena Gomez went to one where they work on crimes together. Like a hackathon? Like a, a true crime hackathon? I can't remember. It was free. It was not framed as something bad. It was actually a good, nice sounding thing. It was like a separate one-off event that they did where everyone got together and really worked on maybe cold cases together. And you just, it's just an issue of getting fresh eyes on something. Sure. Yeah. Which we've learned is very valuable valuable for lay people to get into the mix and, you know, get some non-grizzled detective with our preconceived notions eyes on things. In terms of the genre, that is something that I think is completely invaluable. That and learning uh, just how terrible the cops are. (laughs) (laughs) Cannot stress this enough. They're not doing great work out there. And true crime is, of course, through a white lens also. So that's problematic. There are a lot of Black creators out there and non-white creators out there. I think it would be nice to just have an event where those voices are lifted up a bit outside of being victims. But yeah, but there's, again, there's value. There's value to people talking about these things. A cold case exists because there's no more resources to take care of it. So now you have people who are just willing to devote their time to things like this. There is a space where people are putting their eyes to cold cases and not just in person. It exists on the internet. The wretched, wretched internet. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious to know what your perspective of the internet is in terms of the true crime genre. Oh, man. I try not to engage in those things. Because my company was so small, we didn't have a lot of money to promote our festival. So I would do things like join various Facebook groups that were for true crime. You've got a couple out there. (laughs) wild. Obviously, don't go to any of them. And, you know, I I would post the shows in there that I thought that people in these specific groups would like. And some of the conversation, I mean, our people are just, I I mean, I remember leaving them immediately as soon as I could. I was like, I'm out. Sometimes someone will just post, do you guys really think OJ did it? And it's like, well, (laughs) yes, and that's fine. But what I find to be sometimes problematic is when you go a little too far. And I think you think you're maybe a detective. Like, it's one thing to be helpful, but don't think that you're somehow more knowledgeable than the professionals, which is, of course, something we've witnessed in other arenas over the past two years. 
I think it's very much like people who are obsessed with true crime in that way. It's similar to people who fall prey to conspiracy theories. I think you come to it because you feel very out of control and you just want to feel like you're a little bit more in control of something again, right? Like someone's Mm. out there murdering somebody and I can't do anything about it. So here I am. We found it intriguing that Jen, with a comedy background, didn't find the crimey side of true crime problematic as much as she did the online sleuthing. Because love them or hate them, the online sleuths have achieved some real success in solving cases. To get a better handle on the sleuthing side of true crime, we reached out to an actual investigator, Paul Holes, known for helping to track down the infamous Golden State Killer. In 2018, Paul Holes helped identify the Golden State Killer using DNA and genealogy technology. His perspective on true crime is, naturally, much different than someone like Chris Pedretti, one of the Golden State Killer's victims, who you heard in episode two of this miniseries. Since his success with that famous cold case, Holes has become a true crime celebrity. He's appeared at conventions, hosted a popular podcast, and you can even find merch with the slogan, Hot for Holes. To be clear, Paul Holes isn't selling that merch, but the fact that he's become a true crime sex symbol shows the allure of the successful sleuth. The idea of actually solving a case is, well, sexy. There's pros and cons to the world today. And the online sleuths, I've got a very long and complicated history with that group going all the way back to the late 90s on the Zodiac case. And then, you know, of course, at the end of my career with the Golden State Killer. And in some ways, there are individuals out there that have great skill sets that law enforcement doesn't have. And if they are provided the right information that they might be able to give law enforcement information that could help push the case forward. And as long as they are tactful and understand that the case has to come first, that type of individual could potentially assist. But a lot of these online sleuths become very demanding. In fact, many of them are trying to use me as their personal investigator on Golden State Killer. (laughs) I would receive letters and oftentimes, you know, what Many of these online sleuths like to do is they give just enough. I know I've solved this case. I've got this guy, but they give you no information. You know, they give you no information about the guy or why they think this guy is it. It's like a bait. They're trying to bait you into contacting them. They want attention. So I've learned, quite frankly, when I have this type of person, I say, you need to give me the information up front about who you think this is and why before I'm going to be giving you my cell number or or my email address or anything like that. And then they get into these forums. And I used to lurk in these forums early on. And, you know, some of them had great insight. There'd be things that I would read, go, I didn't think about that. That's curious. But within a matter of a few posts, inevitably, every thread would spiral into a flame war between everybody because everybody is so passionate about who their own personal of interest is that the other person is just a crackpot. And it became just not worth my time to stay on top of what was going on online. But they would reach out to me. They would figure out my email address. I was a public servant. It was something that was freely available. And with select individuals, they got my cell number either I directly gave it or other law enforcement officers would pass my contact information on. And then pretty soon I'm getting spammed. It becomes, it's just, it's a constant flow of information. Most of them don't understand how to put evidence in conjunction with the nexus of the case, which is the crime itself. Mm. You know, a lot of times it was, well, this individual has these geographic locations at the right times where the attacks were occurring. Mm -hmm. And that's 
you know, one of those things we may look at, but it doesn't incriminate the person at all. There's right. many people that have the same type of information. And quite frankly, I've fallen into some of those traps too, where I've put more weight on aspects that turned out were just coincidental. And oftentimes they're relying on what they can get publicly. For example, in Zodiac, of course, there's the handwritten ciphers and cards and letters that he sent in. And so now they're tracking down handwriting examples from the various people doing their own expert analysis on handwriting and saying, this guy's D's are just like Zodiac's. He must be the guy. You know, and, and it just kind of snowballs along those lines. Mm. Every now and then I would get a DNA sample from one of these sleuths. I, I literally would have a wife call me. I think my husband is the Golden State Killer. Oh, damn. He doesn't know I'm calling you. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, ma'am, are you in trouble right now? Mm-hmm. You know, get off the phone. But then I would get a sample. You know, he had to go get his blood drawn for a cancer test. And she was able to convince the nurse to give her a little bit of blood on, on gauze and send it in to me. Wow. You know, so we would have those types of samples run, but obviously none of that ever panned out. But sometimes the sluice go overboard and they actually end up performing illegal activities to try to get evidence. Mm. And this is where, you know, don't don't do that. You know, first for your own personal protection, legal liabilities, but it's also, you know, to protect the case. We don't need to have any legal troubles down the road if we're going to prosecute. Believe me, law enforcement can see so much more than any of these online sleuths can see. So if we see enough to say this person warrants more attention, we will go after it and make sure that the things are done properly in order to maintain the integrity of the evidence in the case. Mm. Mm. If it's just one sleuth, it's manageable. But when it's 30 at a time, it's overwhelming. There's just no way. And, you know, there would be times I would even have women come forward saying, I'm I'm a victim of the East Area Rapist. Hmm. Now I have to interview this person and I'm calling this person up and talking to him and saying, OK, give me the details of the attack. And to a case, to every individual that called me is that I'm I'm a victim of the East Area Rapist. None of the signature components of an East Area Rapist attack were present. And I don't doubt that these women were possibly attacked. Uh, And I would tell them, I I believe you were attacked, but nothing about your case overlaps with the East Area Rapist series. And and unfortunately, you know, they hadn't reported at the time. There's no evidence or the evidence had been destroyed. And so there was just no way to do any follow up on the physical evidence. So that, in a nutshell, is kind of just what I was dealing with and other investigators were dealing with over time. And then eventually some of these guys get so upset. I had one guy, you know, I had a death threat against me because inadvertently I told a TV producer of all people because he had a name and she was going to run with the name out in the news media. And I said, do not put that innocent man's name out to the press. This guy that's saying he's the Golden State Killer, he's a nut job. Well, she ends up telling this guy that I called him a nut job. Ah. The next thing I know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm being threatened with that. I was like, okay, you know, so there are some individuals that are truly dangerous within that online sleuth community. Some of them truly, they've got some mental health issues. And, you know, that's that's part of the scary aspect. And this is where I know, like, San Francisco PD with Zodiac was just so overrun with tips coming in from all the online sleuths across the world. Hmm. You know, at a certain point, it surpasses law enforcement's capacity to be able to deal with that because everybody's pursuing their own leads from behind a keyboard. At a certain point, you become so unfocused as an investigator that you don't make any progress. Did you at any point just want to walk away? Like, did you ever feel just so discouraged by it all, how big it had become? Yes. You know, like with Golden State Killer, the online sluice did it cause me to want to walk away because I could shut off the chatter and that's what I did. It was the roller coaster ride that the time and effort and the personal sacrifice of my life in order to try to solve this case thinking time and time again, I've got this case solved and having DNA eliminate the guy. One guy I spent two years investigating, thinking he was the guy and I couldn't find him. He just disappeared off the face of the earth back in 2004. 
finally found him, thought, oh, I got the case solved, got a DNA sample and eliminated him. And I was crushed. I was like, what am I doing? You know, I'm just, hmm. you know, spending so much time on this. And, you know, I'd push away. But then after a week or two weeks, the itch would come back and I'd pull out the case files and start reading. And then I'd, I'd jump back in the saddle and get going again. I do know, you know, investigators like with Zodiac, some of those investigators, they just get so, they're so cynical about the tips that are coming in due to the notoriety of the case. And then the volume of tips, they're just like, mm, you know, I'm assigned this case, but you know what? Everything that comes to me, it's going in the circular file. It, you know, I just can't deal with this. I've got other cases. Nobody's ever dedicated to any of these old cases. Mm. We've got other cases. We've got other responsibilities. And when something like Zodiac or Golden State Killer ends up taking over your life, it, it does become very frustrating. And I think there are individuals that just have pushed away and never re-engage. You know, they just wait until they're rotated out of that assignment going, mm. thank God, I don't have to deal with that anymore. Mm. And that's where I alienated a lot of the online sleuths when I stopped communicating on Golden State Killer because I was getting spread so thin. Mm. And I thought, you know what? I know what I'm doing investigatively and scientifically that I think I'm on the right track to solve the Golden State Killer. And so I stopped communicating and was able to focus my resources on what I thought was going to advance the case the most. I remember when you interviewed me for Murder Squad. You had mentioned at one point in the Golden State Killer investigative process coming into conflict with, was it a family member or a friend of somebody? Do you mind yeah. like giving me a quick summary of that story? Yeah, you know, and this is where, you know, I've kind of got my foot in two worlds. I did my career in real crime. And now on the media side, I'm in the true crime genre. And sometimes... It's hard to navigate those two worlds. I struggle with this being now in the true crime world in terms of informing viewers and listeners about a case uh, without inadvertently hurting the case or hurting people who are closely associated with the victims. And in this particular case, I had done an interview. Uh, it was for an HBO documentary on the Golden State Killer. And it was really on Michelle McNamara, who wrote a book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Right. But I detailed my assessment of this one homicide. It was of a couple, Lyman and Charlene Smith. And I put out their information based on my reconstruction of the case in terms of what I believe to this day actually happened. But then the family, they had never considered this fact. Mm. And it was very emotionally and psychologically damaging to them to think this is something that their loved one went through. Mm. And in fact, don't believe me, you know, and, and uh, I, I end up outside of court being confronted by the victim's daughter and she's livid and hurt, you know, and we had a very good conversation, but it was something that I realized I have to be more careful because I never considered the possibility that this was something that they didn't know about or would be something that if they did find out about it, it would be something that would be so hurtful to them mm. that it just further traumatizes them. Yeah. And I, I was just crushed to know that I had done something like that. And and that's that's the hard thing because some people, you know, I've, I've worked with victims, loved ones who, Paul, tell me everything that you think, you know, they want to know yeah. and others can't entertain, even if they just don't think that I'm right. But the thought that I am saying something where they're going, my loved one went through that in the last moments of their life. I cannot just handle that thought. So it's, it's a tough balance now yeah. that I'm in this, this world of explaining details and, and often horrific details that people that are associated with the case are going to hear. And that's where it's that divide. We have real crime and then we have true crime where there's an entertainment component. And it's a matter of, well, how do I strike that balance? Hmm. Knowing the things that I know or often am consulted on without further traumatizing people who are involved. That's the million-dollar question. Online sleuthing could simultaneously offend the victim's family while also muddying the waters of a cold case investigation. 
Someone like Paul Holes feels a deep responsibility to avoid those dangers while telling true crime stories. Unfortunately, such care is not as widespread as you'd hope. Too often, true crime fandom runs headlong into those problems. In our research, we stumbled on a missing persons case that showed just how bad it can get. My name is Catherine Laidlaw, and I'm a writer based in Toronto in Canada. I write primarily for magazines like Wired, Outside, The Atlantic. I've written features on crime for Toronto Life magazine for many years. I specifically reached out to you about an article that Wired published on September 9th, 2021. It was called Rain Boots, Turning Tides, and the Search for a Missing Boy. What is the origin story of this article? Yeah, so I encountered the seed of this story through a local news story that came across probably my Twitter feed, if I'm being honest. And it was just a kind of bizarre headline that caught my attention. It said something about the parents of a missing boy, cyberbullying case goes ahead in court. And I thought, there's a lot to unpack there. So Dylan Ehler is a three-year-old boy living in a place called Truro, Nova Scotia, small town. And he went missing while he was being looked after by his grandmother. His parents, Jason Ehler and Ashley Brown, immediately were as frantic as you would imagine parents to be. The area where Dylan went missing is bordered by a creek that flows into a river, which flows into the Bay of Fundy, which is the body of water that has the most treacherous tides in the world. And so a couple of dominant theories emerged, one being that Dylan fell into the creek, was carried out to the river, and then carried out to the bay. The evidence that supports that dominant theory is that the only two pieces of evidence that have ever been found in this case are his rain boots that he was wearing, and they were found submerged in the creek at two different points. The other theory that has emerged is that he was taken, abducted. There isn't any evidence to support that, that I have seen or know of. There also isn't enough evidence on the other theory to completely rule it out. And, you know, search and rescue team, the police, the private investigator who looked into the case, they all say that the balance of probabilities lies with him falling into the creek, but there is not enough evidence to be certain. In that absence of information, a bunch of web sleuths have been theorizing for a couple of years now on who might have been involved. Did the grandmother take a polygraph test? Did the mother who posted some quite sinister TikTok videos in the weeks before take a polygraph? You know, who's responsible? I think people really want a person to pin their fury around this case on. Hmm. That's an interesting observation. Why do you think that so many of the online community wants there to be someone to blame as opposed to just a tragic circumstance that a toddler wanders off and falls into a creek and is swept out? Yeah, I wonder about that a lot. I think there's a couple of things going on. One is that I think as a society, we have a really clear idea of what a victim is supposed to look like. And I think we are very hard on particularly women and especially mothers and people who don't tick all of those boxes. We don't really allow them to be victims in the same way. And I guess I say victims with scare quotes because I know that's a loaded term in and of itself. But when I think of someone like Ashley, who's Dylan's mom, and she had posted these sinister TikToks, which I will add hundreds of thousands of other people also posted, like they were part of sort of a broader meme. And then you get people online saying, well, sure, but those other people, their son didn't go missing. And you think, wow, like this is, I see it as sort of like quite ruthless, the way we treat mothers who don't have perfect lives or don't look the way that we want them to look or whatever it is. 
And so I think part of it is that, like just our refusal to accept that people are complex. (laughs) And then I think part of it is that in a small town, everybody knows everybody else's business and there are long held grudges and a lot of family history. And this was a family that wasn't necessarily widely beloved in town and was sort of known for being a bit rough and tumble, I guess. Hmm. And so I think initially the negativity online started locally and then it really grew when people dug up the TikToks and that really gained momentum across the country and across the states as well, you know, and then psychics got involved and things (laughs) like that, of course. (laughs) Of course, yes. So twice in your article, you quote Ashley saying something and then you repeat it later on down in the article. And the quote is, no one gives you a pamphlet on how to be the parents of a missing child. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering why this statement struck you, if it struck you, and if so, why is it so important in the context of this story? Yeah, it absolutely struck me. I think it really summed up a gap in our social support systems that I hadn't seen before, hadn't been aware of before. And I don't know that anyone would be necessarily aware of it unless they went seeking a degree of support and then found that it didn't exist. Like not only is this experience a real ambiguous grief limbo experience, it's also I think like a real society safety net limbo experience. The government doesn't give you any benefit if your child hasn't been a victim of a crime, which in this case they couldn't prove. There wasn't any evidence. And so they were expected to go back to work the next day and continue economically living their lives in the same way to support themselves and pay their bills. Their living costs don't go down, but there's nothing supplementary that accounts for what else they're carrying in their lives now and the massive amount of work that they're doing to search and investigate and keep on the police to find out what's going on. And of course, there are support networks with other people who are experiencing similar circumstances, but there's not an overarching guideline. It struck me, I think, because it seems like one of the human experiences that we don't really have a script for right now, you know, and there's all this sort of emergent research into ambiguous grief and how difficult that is because as humans, we're sort of hardwired to want narratives and resolution. And when you don't have that, it can really do a number on your psyche. Hmm. And I think it can also really do a number on your day-to-day life aside from the psychological ramifications. And that's something that people don't really see or think about unless they've been touched by a circumstance like this. Yeah. and, And I just remember thinking the gap between what was playing out on the ground and what was playing out online was marked by a real lack of empathy, I thought, for these people. You know, even if they are worth investigating, that doesn't mean they're not grieving, you know, or desperately seeking some kind of scrap of information. And I'm not sure the web sleuths ever really considered what it must be like to wake up every day and ask those questions or have those sort of questions thundering through your mind all the time. It just seemed like a total absence of that perspective, which I found jarring, honestly. Yeah. Can you give examples of how Ashley or Jason were criticized and for what? Yes. So there were a few things. I mean, there were many things, but a few things sort of stand out as emblematic of the undercurrents that were going on. One was that a family friend had started a GoFundMe page for them, and the web sleuths really took that and ran with it as sort of like, oh, they're going to use the money to buy drugs or booze. Like it was, again, just like an absolute lack of understanding that your life still needs fuel for the engine to run, even when something like this has stopped all your emotions in their tracks. Anytime one of them changed anything, I remember Ashley got a haircut and they were really upset about that. Oh, did she get a new nose piercing? How does she have money for that? It was just like really seizing on these behaviors. It got to the point where, and I remember just thinking this was like beyond, I mean, it it all had crossed a series of lines, but this really crossed a, a hard line for me where Jason had 
decided, and I think one of the ways that he's really been grappling with this is by going out and searching for evidence himself, you know, along the shores of the bay and, and along the river. That seems logical to me. And the sleuths were sort of making fun of him for doing that, like suggesting that he was like just creeping around the bushes, that it was ineffective. And I thought, wow, like even this is fodder for mockery. Like this has taken on a degree of theatricality that is abhorrent. Hmm. Did you find out who these online sleuths were, where they were coming from, why they were interested in this case, and what kinds of accusations they were making? Yeah, so to some extent, yes. And to some extent, no, because of the nature of anonymity on the internet. There's sort of a concentrated group of local sleuths, I would say. I think they would maybe term themselves Dylan supporters. And one thing that emerged as I was sort of looking into who they were was that the degree to which we can think that we're helping when we're actually harming is so radical. And that's a real chasm that develops as well. In speaking to some of these people, like they really believed that they were on a quest for justice for this little boy and that taking the parents to task were part of that quest. And so some of them were local from Truro, some from Halifax who had just heard a lot about the case. Like the case was really highly publicized across the East Coast of Canada. It hadn't really made it further out of the Atlantic bubble, as we sort of call it. And I think once the TikTok videos came out, they had a perception of Ashley. And then Jason, who waded into the Facebook groups and defended you know, his partner, his family, things like that, I think gave them an impression of who he was in the aftermath of all this that was not necessarily accurate. In any case, yes, the sleuths were locals who had heard about it and cared about the case from the beginning, were in a couple of instances, I think, trying to fill holes that existed in their own lives. A couple of them were grieving parents themselves in a slightly different way and things like that. More broadly speaking, so there were sort of a couple of psychics who got involved. One in particular, she's American. And my sense from that is that she really feeds off conflict and really enjoyed the attention that she was getting from these groups where she would say that she had a vision or there was something to investigate or this and that. And it was sort of presented as new evidence, even though it was imaginary. And then a group of locals would sort of go out and search this area that she had mentioned and, of course, not find anything. The problem with this case, and I think a lot of cases, is that there's just there's nothing to go over. And so you end up just chewing on the same nonsense over and over and over again until you're deep in like a twisted funhouse of mirrors almost. Hmm. Yeah, I was just about to ask this question about why the participation of the online web sleuth communities is complicated, particularly in missing persons cases. And you a little bit alluded to that here, but I was wondering if you could maybe expound upon that. Why is it not just an obviously good thing or an obviously bad thing? Yeah, it's very tricky. And not to fall back on a cliche, but you know, they say like everything in moderation, right? Like I think a story like this is an example of how something can swing towards sort of like the extremely negative side of the pendulum or the spectrum. I think foundationally, it comes from, generally speaking, a good place. Like people want justice and justice looks really different to different people and that's maybe where things get complicated. There are some bad actors, definitely, and even in this particular case, there are several. But I have to believe, because I believe that humanity is good, that the general population of people who are interested in solving crimes are interested in doing that because they want resolution for the people who are affected and involved. You know, do I think that there are elements of attention seeking? Yes. Do I think there are elements of sort of wanting to be the smartest person in the room who solves the crime? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's where it gets really complicated, like human motivation in any sense is rich and complicated. And I think that there are instances where it has worked and been successful. And that's laudable. And I, I like to see that, of course. And I, I want resolution for 
anyone who's on the periphery of any crime and especially sort of a missing persons case where you wake up every day not knowing of course I want that I just don't know that someone typing away on their computer with two rain boots to work with who's never been to Truro doesn't know anything about the dynamics at play is going to magically come up with the answer like these parents on the ground don't know the police on the ground don't know search and rescue private investigators the lawyers there's an outsized idea of grandeur i think and furor that you can really get caught up in in these groups and i think that we're starting to see the negative sides of it a little bit more you sort of have like the gabby pepito case for example where web sleuths really went hog wild on breaking down the details of that case as well but it raised a really really good point i think which is like the people that we pay attention to in society tend to look the same and here in canada there's been an ongoing outcry and rightly so about missing and murdered indigenous women in canada there was a nationwide inquiry there's long been suspected to be a serial killer in an area of the west coast here called the highway of tears those cases have never gotten the prominence or investigative treatment from the masses. And so I think while it maybe started in a fundamentally good place, it has taken on a life of its own such that you get to the point where you have Fox running TV shows that break down crimes and allow viewers to try to solve them in real time forgetting that these are real people you know dealing with the real life ramifications of what's going on it's not for you to sort of put on your detective hat and solve a true story you know i don't know there's something grotesque about how, what it has become to me yeah one thing that i wanted to observe as well is as much as you don't get a pamphlet on how to be the parent of a missing child, you also don't really get a pamphlet on how to be the target of online harassment. And I was wondering, how did Ashley and Jason respond to this? Did they have anyone they could turn to? Yeah, I was back in Nova Scotia meeting with them about a month ago. You know, I think that the frenzy has continued unabated. and They've dealt with it in really different ways. For Ashley, she's turned inward, I would say, gotten really insular. She has to psych herself up to go to the grocery store now. She took a break from work just because it was all feeling like a lot. On the other side of that, you have Jason, who I think has had to really work to rein in his impulse to very vocally defend his family and himself and to sort of really try to keep the focus on Dylan. And I think he hasn't always done that as gracefully as the people around him wish that he had. And so, you know, it's in some ways a case study of strange human emotion and sort of the vehicle that grief can be, I guess. But yeah, I would say it's ongoing. They're getting death threats from anonymous accounts. They continue to get sort of like ransom notes demanding Bitcoin for the return of their son. That's been an ongoing thing. People keep reporting Jason's Facebook account, so it gets pulled down. But the bullies continue unabated. I think their feeling about having gone through the legal system to try to cut this off at the root is effectively that they don't feel that it was worth the investment of time there are just new accounts created and new groups created to continue to push these narratives. Tech regulation is sort of its own topic of discussion, but I do think there's not a lot of recourse for people who are dealing with this. And that's going to be something that more and more people are going to face. And we need some avenue, whether it's the legal system or through private companies or what, to mitigate this kind of thing when it gets so out of control. Hmm. One of the things that I've also found was the issue of jurisdiction. Who has jurisdiction online? And are there laws even being broken? It's one thing to say we know something is going wrong. And it's another thing to say, but can we do anything about it? Is there a legal recourse? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think one that will get asked and I hope answered in the coming years. But jurisdiction definitely played a role here. Like, at one point, Allison said, like, what are we going to do? Sue Facebook? 
so what do you file the papers in California? So someone has to go there. Like the psychic is in upstate New York. So like, do you go there? The responsibility is so scattershot at this point that I think it, it starts to feel a little bit like you cut off one of Medusa's snakes and then three grow back in her place. And yeah, the sort of scattershot, even jurisdictional way that our legal system is set up for some very good reason doesn't really work here when you have a global forum for everyone to play in. The internet has outgrown us all or our ability to sort of mediate these kinds of things in any systematic way. This is where true crime is right now. It's an industry that has grown exponentially in recent years, fueled by an explosion of content and a huge growing fan base. And as it's grown, its ethical dilemmas have multiplied. Every week, it seems there's another controversy. And often it is the crime victims who have the least input and highest stakes in true crime stories who end up re-traumatized. In our next and final episode, we're going to explore the future of true crime and how it can improve. What does true crime with a conscience look like? In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And instead of lurking in cold case forums, why not add your theory to what makes Labyrinth so great with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? Blood Money, a Labyrinth's miniseries, is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. This episode was written, edited, and produced by us and Sophia Gates, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. The idea of actually solving a case is, well, sexy. Um, can you just do another take of that? You're like, I don't believe you that you think it's sexy. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I'm not hot for holes. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Fun fact, for every hour of labyrinths you enjoy, we put in dozens of hours researching, outreaching, interviewing, scripting, editing, and audio engineering. What keeps us going? Coffee. So if you're enjoying labyrinths, please buy us a coffee. Head over to patreon.com slash Robinson, where you can make a monthly donation. Thanks for getting lost with us.